3: Old school legends, modern power players, and ex lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans, covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge Podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
2: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lam.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick, and it is Monday, the day of each week that we read back messages from the Stuff to Blow Your Mind mailbag. If you have never gotten in touch before and want to give it a shot, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your uh, Whatever kind of message you want to send is fine. Uh, of course, we always welcome feedback to recent episodes. If you have something interesting you want to add to a topic we talked about, send it on in. Again, that is contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Let's see. Rob, I think I'm going to kick things off this week by uh, reading a response to an older series of ours, the one on cauldrons. Mm, yes. This is from Nathan and Olivia who say, Hi, Rob and Joe. It's Nathan and Olivia again, and we hope this email finds you well. We recently listened to the episodes about cauldrons and saw an interesting-looking story on the CBC— Uh, It's about someone in New York that organizes perpetual stew social gatherings. You just need to bring an ingredient to add to the stew. It's interesting to see this still happening today, and especially somewhere that may not have the most neighborly reputation. Anyways, just something that caught our attention, and as always, thanks for the great content, Nathan and Olivia. So the article, if you want to look it up, read it yourself, is called She's Been Cooking a Stew for 40 Days and It's Attracted Hundreds of New Friends. (laughs) This is for CBC Radio by Lane Harrison from uh, just this past month, July 2023. So to summarize a few points, uh, the story is about a New York resident named Annie Rawurda who has been organizing the Perpetual Stew. So it is a... Pot of super stew that uh, has been going. It's been cooking for over a month now. Uh, it started as a vegan potato leek soup that she made in a crock pot. It's been cooking ever since. She started inviting people over to come have a bowl, but also to bring uh, an ingredient of their choice and add it to the pot when they did. And you might imagine these contributions would all be some selection of a different vegetable or broth or something, and many are. But the article notes that one person added a single bay leaf.
2: Hmm.
1: Bay leaf's always good. At the time of the story, more than 300 people had added their own stuff to the soup. And uh, Roberta said, uh, quote, I found the whole thing to be far more touching and far more human than I anticipated. And she has given the stew many nicknames at this point, including the stew of Theseus. (laughs) Clever. Uh, To read a passage from the CBC article, quote, The sense of community wafting off the stew makes sense in the eyes of Jeffrey Pilcher, a professor of history and food studies at the University of Toronto. Quote, That notion of social connection around the pot and the hearth is fundamental to human societies, he said. He called the practice a very basic, pleasant way of cooking. Pilcher could not say specifically which cultures may have been perpetually making stew throughout history. Other historians have written about the practice's existence in early medieval times. In her book, uh, Food in History, British historian Ray Tannehill writes about how much of medieval Europe north of the Alps would have daily meals that included an always-changing broth with new ingredients added daily. She writes that the cauldrons housing the broth were rarely emptied, allowing flavors to linger for weeks. Quote, except in really hard times, the system meant that there was generally something hot and filling to eat, even if it was no more than a soup thick with the shreds of past dinners, Tannehill wrote. Uh, so the article goes on to explore several things. Uh, one is the question, is the perpetual stew actually good? Like, does it taste good? And uh, Roberta herself, who organized this, she says it really depends on the day. That kind of makes sense. And of course, she notes that she also has to be careful about food safety, uh, making sure to keep the stew always above the temperature where bacteria mm-hmm. can start to grow, which, uh, yeah, you can imagine. You definitely would not want your perpetual stew just getting into the warm zone. You got to keep it hot. So this article was from a few weeks ago at this point. I wonder if the, the same pot is still going.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, make it an 80-day stew, right? See how long you can maintain it.
1: Now, also, Nathan and Olivia uh, mentioned this sort of challenges the stereotype that New Yorkers are unfriendly or unneighborly. You know, that's something I always think about, like these generalizations about regional unfriendliness. Uh, In the United States, it is. It's true. I I think you used to hear it more like... uh, like in, you know, 80s movies and stuff. I remember this being a central theme of the movie Ghostbusters 2, uh, but it's a common stereotype that people in New York are just, like, rude and unfriendly and mean to each other. Uh, But it's also, there's a common stereotype in the U.S. that French people are rude. And when I went to France, basically everybody I met was incredibly nice and friendly and hospitable. Uh, I saw, I think, the whole time I was there, exactly one incident of a Parisian being rude to an American tourist, and it was the American's fault. The American was rude to them first, and they were repaying in kind. So I wonder about all these stereotypes, including the grumpy New Yorker stereotype. Is it even really true that New Yorkers are, on average, less friendly than people in any other city in America? I, I'm doubtful.
2: Yeah, yeah, these generalities um, yeah, are often uh, not a one-size-fits-all sort of thing. Alright, here's another bit of listener mail. This one comes to us from Jim in New Jersey. The subject, sci-fi military ice. Um, and there was some question about what episode this is responding to. I mean, we did some episodes, older episodes about, uh, like, pike Reed, um, the, you know, different types of ice and, and so forth. And we might have, I think we referred to it, at least in passing, in the mud episodes.
1: I bet I know what it was. I think you brought up, like, Star Wars and, like, whether the Empire would be able to just freeze the mud on a mud planet so they could walk Mm -hmm. around on it.
2: Yeah, yeah. So so sort of put out a call, uh, a call-out to folks who have more experience than me with uh, military science fiction. And, uh, anyway, this is what Jim in New Jersey has to say. Robert and Joe, I think the most famous fictional military ice is Ice-9 from Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut. Ice-9 is created by the scientist Felix Honaker in the book. Uh, Wikipedia describes Ice-9 as, quote, Ice-9 is an alternative structure of water that is solid at room temperature and acts as a seed crystal upon contact with ordinary liquid water, causing that liquid water to instantly freeze and transform into more Ice-9. Wikipedia also says that it was created for military use. Quote, a Marine general suggested developing a substance that could solidify mud so that soldiers could run across it more easily. All right. Mm. Papa Vonnegut with the answers here. (laughs) Um, Ice Nine has two properties, Jim uh, uh, points out. One, it's a solid at room temperature. And two, it converts any liquid water that touches it into Ice Nine itself. It doesn't take much imagination to expand these properties to the extreme. It's like Midas's touch but worse. Midas only turned into gold the things he touched. What if his touch transferred to the gold he touched as well? For example, if you were to set a newly transformed golden goblet onto onto a table and then that table would turn to gold and then the floor and then a chain reaction would ensue. That's what Ice Nine does. A recent cautionary tales podcast, The Man Who Played With Hurricanes, is about Irving Lengmuir a General Electric scientist who believed that he could control weather mostly via some form of cloud seeding. Vonnegut based his Ice-9 scientist after Langmuir. Vonnegut's brother worked directly with Honaker at General Electric. The Vonnegut brother connection starts at about 30 minutes into this podcast. Jim in New Jersey.
1: That's interesting. Irving Langmuir came up in part two of the uh, Oil on Troubled Water series because he did important work on oil films that form on water. Um, but yeah, this image of uh, Ice Nine, I, I read Cat's Cradle in high school, and it is one of the plot devices that has stuck with me more than almost anything else I can think of from any other book or story. It's a horrifying idea. I remember experiencing genuine dread when, when imagining this and thinking, like, could there actually be such a thing? It's a molecule of water that just would destroy Earth's ability to sustain life if it were to touch the ocean. Mm. to clarify that this is not a real property of right uh, <laughs> there is such a thing as ice nine there are different uh oh i can't remember what it's called now There, are are like numbered ices that are different phases of ice i think it has to do with the crystalline structure of when ice forms or, or the different like ice one ice two ice three and so forth but uh the actual ice nine is nothing like this hmm
2: yeah, I never read this particular book. I, I read Slaughterhouse-Five, but I think, that's, I think that's the only Vonnegut book that I've actually, actually read. All right, so that one, that one came out of our mud episode. So what else? Do we have any other mud listener mail?
1: Yes, we heard from Nabil on the subject of—this uh, is replying to, I think, especially the part in that series about mud bricks and mud-built cities like the city of Shibam in Yemen— So, Nabil says, Hi, Robin Joe. I really enjoyed your series on mud. As a civil engineer, your first episode that detailed the classification and properties of soil hit home. The factors discussed play a huge role in ground engineering to determine the bearing capacity of the soil for building foundations as well as for road carriageways, as well as the infiltration rate of the soil in relation to drainage. You then went on to discuss various mud-building cultures, as well as an entire city that practices mud-based construction into the modern age. This made me think of Jenne, a city in southern Mali. Established in the 3rd century B.C. and then a major urban center around 850 A.D., Jene is today a UNESCO World Heritage Site with its 200 mud homes and central mud-built mosque. Civilization V players will recall the Grand Mosque of Jene as one of the wonders within the game. Whilst the mosque itself has been rebuilt over the years, the current nearly 20-meter-high structure dates back to 1907 and is intended to replicate the original structure. Standing tall as one of the wonders of African architecture and the largest mud brick building in the world, the Great Mosque, or Friday Mosque of Djenné was built in the Sudano-Sahelian style around the 13th century. It is quite a striking structure with its visible wooden beams and unmistakable mud walls. And then uh, Nabil attaches some photos for us to look at. Yeah,
2: absolutely uh, he- stunning.
1: Yeah. Here is another interesting thing about the mosque. And Nabil here is pulling a selection from a BBC article. Quote, the walls of Jene's Great Mosque are reconstructed with mud each April in an epic one day event called the Crepissage or plastering. The structure requires annual reinforcement, as do the town's traditional adobe homes, before Mali's brief yet brutal rainy season, which mostly occurs in July and August. This immense undertaking ensures that the mosque will survive the rainy season— despite altering in shape ever so slightly each year. Not only is the crepissage an important act of uh, maintenance designed to protect the mosque's walls from cracking and crumbling, but it's also a festival that celebrates Jene's community, faith, and heritage. And then uh, Nabil goes on to say that also in Mali, you will find the city of Timbuktu, similarly a city of mud houses and a grand mud built mosque. The Dijinjeribur, I hope I'm saying that right, uh, the, the, the grand mosque of, uh, of Timbuktu, which has stood for nearly 700 years. Nabil says Timbuktu was an important cultural and academic hub of the 13th century with its impressive university and library, also a mud built structure that is still standing today. This African city was at the forefront of the world in terms of academia and trade. Its flourishing gold production made the Mali Empire immensely wealthy, with one of its leaders, Mansa Musa, believed to be the wealthiest person that ever lived. The renowned Timbuktu manuscripts, several hundred thousand beautiful bound codices, traveled far and wide across the world and were invaluable in the spread of the teachings of Islam, from astronomy and mathematics to medicine and law. Under Mansa Musa and his successors, Timbuktu transformed from a small but successful trading post into a center of commerce and scholarship, making the Mali Empire one of the most influential in the Golden Age of Islam. It would be great to someday do an episode or series on the oft overlooked yet incredibly important contrib- contribution to academia that came from the old and flourishing African empires before the ravages of colonialism. Apologies for the long email. There's so much more to be said about this fascinating mud city. Thanks for the hours of fascinating topics you provide for us all, Nabil. Oh, thank you, Nabil. Yeah.
2: Yeah, this is a great one. Um now, on this topic, if anyone wants, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily a, a longer dive, but if you want just another sort of uh, introduction to it, uh, TED-Ed did a great video titled Hidden Treasures of Timbuktu that uh, provides a nice overall of, of uh, this particular place and its place in uh, in, in history. So uh, I, I recommend this video. I watched this with my family a while back.
1: It's interesting to think about. So there are many advantages of mud built structures but one of the downsides is that they do require more frequent maintenance than some other types of building materials but that leads to a kind of um it's interesting that like this culture grows up around it where you have almost uh, like the like it talks about the crepissage festival where it's almost kind of a party where you have to reinforce the structure and have people come in and and replaster it to make sure that it stays sturdy against uh, against the yearly seasonal patterns. But this this turns into a community strengthening event.
2: Yeah. Plus, I mean, when you, I I think it's also an important fact, I think we've mentioned this in in the mud episode, like uh, even like a, uh, you know, any city you look at, any like modern city, there's still a a great deal of maintenance and upkeep and inspection that has to take place to keep things from falling apart. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, the the idea that you have a city like this, where, you know, regular um, upkeep and maintenance has to take place. I mean, that's not, That's not a strike against modernity. Like, that's an aspect of modernity. So uh, uh, I think it's fascinating. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies.
0: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling...
2: All right, shall we get into some Weird House Cinema listener mail? All right, we heard from a couple of listeners in regard to our episode on the Chronicles of Riddick. Uh, I'm going to read this one. This is a brief uh, message from Shadow Rat on Discord. Uh, and hey, if you're like, oh, I want to join the stuff to blow your mind, Discord. Well, you can. Just email us. We'll have the email address at the end of this episode. Email us. We'll send you a link, and you can go in there, and you can interact with some other listeners. Anyway, Shadow Rat says, There's something so serendipitously perfect in the fight between Riddick and Lord Marshall. It's typical for actors to focus slightly wrong when performing against CGI stuff like a teleporting Lord Marshall. In this case, it does look like Vin Diesel didn't seem to know exactly where the effects will be. But instead of ruining it, it just adds to the impression that Riddick is kind of in trouble and this fight is serious business. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's interesting, yeah. so yeah, like the uh the Star Wars prequel syndrome, where th- there's a lot of c g i going on in the screen, you've got actors acting on a green screen, and you don't know if like they're always looking in exactly the right direction <laughs> because like there wasn't actually something there,
2: yeah, and perhaps you had sort of evolving sort of standards for how you do it, like with a ball and a stick
1: sort of thing, yeah. Uh, but in this case, uh, yeah, it would it would make sense because the whole point is that the Lord Marshal is not just in one place at once, but is a kind of like morphing, uh, uh, slippery, slippery spectral creature.
2: Yeah, I'd say another um, aspect of CGI effects is that you can definitely see that, that more seasoned actors often do a better time with it than others. Like I think about the I've the, mentioned this before, but the Harry Potter films like there's a difference between, um, you know, one of the the, the young uh, or child actors interacting with Dobby, even though they were, they were all great uh, in their own way. But there's a difference between one of them interacting with Dobby, the house elf, and like Gary Oldman. And I think a lot of that just comes down like to the seasoned abilities of the actors.
1: Hmm. Interesting. But yeah, I, I agree with Shadow Rat about uh, this, this fight scene. Uh, but we got another message about Chronicles of Riddick from Lurch. I just finished your Weird House Cinema episode on the Chronicles of Riddick, which I admit is one of my favorites. Oh, Rob, you got some company here,
2: yeah, fellow Riddickian there.
1: Uh, part of the discussion touched on Mister Diesel's appear as <laughs> part of the discussion touched on Mister Diesel's appeal as an actor, but you really weren't able to nail it down. Honestly, neither can I, but I am going to try. There is another actor with whom we are familiar, who, in my opinion, displays a very similar appeal. Folks, you're not going to be ready for the comparison Lurch (laughs) is about to make. Lurch says, Vincent Price. When Mm -hmm. I watch either of them on screen, it doesn't matter how serious the role or scene is. I get the impression that bubbling away under the surface is a five-year-old about to lapse into a fit of giggles while trying to scream, this is so much fun and they each do it so awesomely that you go right along for the ride with them. People who can share their fun through time and space are uncommon. Vincent Price and Vin Diesel are among that sparse population. Thanks for your time. Keep the gravy warm, Lurch. I never would have thought to make this comparison. I think maybe I see what you're saying. They are in a way both talented actors, but they also have a strong... um, ham emitter and they Mm -hmm. can like turn the gain up on the ham emitter and go into ham mode and they they clearly delight in doing so
2: yeah they they completely inhabit those characters no matter what they might consist of i mean with vincent price just the films we've talked about on, on weird house like you have a you know have a film like um Uh, The Abominable Dr. Fibes, where uh, the character does not speak, (laughs) which is a severe limitation to put on uh, someone like Vincent Price, who has such such a tremendous speaking voice. But he still, you know, completely occupies that character and and, and makes you buy into it 100 percent. I don't know. It's it's still hard to sort of contain the ideas of Vincent Price and Vin Diesel in my head at the same time. I mean, they're just uh, I'm not saying they're oil and water or anything, but it's just like they're they're such different entities. It's hard for me to to bring them to to together. To to even imagine some like time shifting scenario in which they might occupy the the same screen at the same time. But I don't know. I mean, I guess you know Vincent Price would have made a nice Lord Marshal. I could imagine him occupying a a role like that and ultimately working opposite uh, Vin Diesel,
1: Mr. Diesel. <laughs> If he happened to be knighted, would he become Sir Diesel? I
2: suppose. I'm oh, not wait, sure no. How that
1: would go down. But I, I think it's first name, isn't it? He would be Sir Vin.
2: Sir Vin, Sir Vin Diesel. Yeah.
1: Because it's like Sir Elton, not Sir John. Hmm. Yes. Yes.
2: Oh, another Vincent Price bit. Uh, this is something that was pointed out on the uh, the Facebook uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module, which, hey, if you're like, hey, I'd like to be a part of that, well, if you just go on Facebook, you can find it, and you can ask to join it. Uh, but it was brought up that we were talking about Vin Diesel's supposed Dungeons & Dragons interests and his Dungeons & Dragons character. Um, I don't know if this is if there's anything official here, but it has been said that his movie, The Last Witch Hunter, is to some extent based on his Dungeons & Dragons interests. So I don't know where the, where the truth falls in that. But uh, that one has Michael Caine in it.
1: Unfortunately, I saw comments from several listeners uh, describing it as unwatchably unpleasant. But
2: <laughs> I Yeah, know. I remember seeing trailers for it and I was not enticed. Maybe they're all wrong. I mean sometimes uh, there's a, there's a there's a nugget of of awesomeness uh, buried in a film that not everyone really is all that into, so uh who knows uh, but uh, it's it's not on my immediate to watch list
1: all right, should we call it there for today? Yeah, I suppose we
2: should go ahead and call it. But uh, thanks to everyone who wrote in. Uh, Keep them coming. Uh, We didn't get to get to every listener mail in this episode. But uh, we do read everything that comes in, even though we don't always have time to feature it. Don't have don't certainly don't always have time to respond uh, to you um, uh, via email. But uh, but do keep writing in about current and past and potential future episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, Weird House Cinema selections that you've seen or, or would like to see or would like to hear us uh, feature, all of it is fair game. Just a reminder, the listener Mails air on Mondays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, short form Artifact or Monster Effect on Wednesday and on Fridays we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. And if you're in the UK and you're somehow listening to this episode and you're like, hey, what happened to my main feeds of this i was listening to this on spotify or or apple podcasts or whatever well go look again look for the uk feed you're gonna have to subscribe to something new in order to keep going um so just just putting that out there again uh, in case you need that information
1: it's called stuff to blow your mind uk it's the exact same podcast feed uh but either It has already happened or will soon happen that that's the only way you'll be able to get the show. And so, very simple, just sign up for Stuff to Blow Your Mind UK. Anyway, huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for?
2: Get with the times and switch to visible at visible.com. Monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit visible.com. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing
0: the right travel partner.
1: Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was it.